a prayer before study. Ineffable creator, who from the treasures of your wisdom have established three hierarchies of angels, have arrayed them in marvelous order above the fiery heavens, and have marshaled the regions of the universe with such artful skill. You are proclaimed the true font of light and wisdom, and the primal origin raised high beyond all things. Pour forth a ray of your brightness into the darkened places of my mind. Disperse from my soul the twofold darkness into which I was born, sin and ignorance. You make eloquent the tongues of infants. Refine my speech and pour forth upon my lips the goodness of your blessing. Grant to me keenness of mind, capacity to remember, skill in learning, subtlety to interpret, and eloquence in speech. May you guide the beginning of my work, direct its progress, and bring it to completion. You who are true God and true man, who live and reign, world without end. Amen. Welcome, friends, to Old Books with Grace. What you just heard is Thomas Aquinas' Prayer Before Study, written in the 13th century. I love to read and pray that before I begin thinking and writing, and each episode of this podcast will begin with it. I'm Dr. Grace Hammond. A little bit about myself. I have a PhD in medieval literature from Duke University. I love tea and walks. I'm currently based in Denver, Colorado, and I share three young kids with my husband, Scott. So what is Old Books with Grace all about? Put simply, this is a venue to share and talk about old books. Sounds simple enough. Including literature, theology, poetry, and anything in between. By old, I mean older than a century. Especially the medieval stuff that I really love. Sharing old literature is a project close to my heart. One of my current obsessions is brainstorming ways to bring these wonderful works out of the academy. Of course, college is an amazing place to find beautiful books and intellectual community. But I believe these works should be brought into people's hearts and minds who don't study them for a living, who work in other fields, who raise kids, or just don't have the luxury of taking classes on the side. But why take the time and trouble to read and think about works that are, admittedly, difficult, time-consuming, often troubling, or just plain boring at times. C.S. Lewis, the mid-century medievalist and popular writer, has a reason that I find really compelling. He writes in an introduction to the work of St. Athanasius that everyone of the same time period shares the same outlook, complete with the same emphases, truths, weaknesses, and problems. Here's what he has to say. Quote, Nothing strikes me more when I read the controversies of past ages than the fact that both sides were usually assuming without question a good deal, which we should now absolutely deny. They thought that they were as completely opposed as two sides could be, but in fact, they were all the time secretly united, united with each other and against earlier and later ages by a great mass of common assumptions. So we ask now, How could they have thought that, referring to some beliefs of the past? Someday, future generations will say the same of us. 
we are just as equally trapped within our own shared unseen assumptions. Is there a solution to this problem? Again, back to Lewis. None of us can fully escape this blindness, but we shall certainly increase it and weaken our guard against it if we read only modern books. The only palliative is to keep the clean sea breeze of the centuries blowing through our minds, and this can be done only by reading old books. Not, of course, that there's any magic about the past. People were no cleverer then than they are now. They made as many mistakes as we, but not the same mistakes. They will not flatter us in the errors we are already committing, and their own errors, being now open and palpable, will not endanger us. Two heads are better than one, not because either is infallible, but because they are unlikely to go wrong in the same direction. To be sure, the books of the future would be just as good a corrective as the books of the past, but unfortunately, we cannot get at them. Those were the words of C.S. Lewis in his introduction to St. Athanasius that I find very helpful. I've been discouraged lately, and I know many of you feel the same way. We are living through a pandemic, through a tumultuous and frightening political era, and many large-scale changes ecologically and socially. But we aren't alone. We aren't the first people to live through rampant sickness, civic upheaval, or difficult ethical quandaries about race, politics, class, gender, or religion. Let's listen to their words and see what we can learn about them and about ourselves. I hope to inhale the clean sea breeze of the past in this podcast and its accompanying blog, oldbookswithgrace.com. You'll be able to follow this podcast or read along on the blog. Sometimes we'll read whole books together step by step. You're welcome to read with me or just listen to my commentary. At other times, I will share short sections or quick quotes or a great idea from a work. Sometimes I'll write about historical, particularly medieval, beliefs and practices that illuminate the challenges of our present age. And I would love to hear from you if you want to look at something in particular. My whole life has been a journey of learning how to think, and I love to think with other people, both past and present. Thanks for thinking with me. Our first series will be reading Julian of Norwich's amazing contemplative work, often editorially titled Revelations of Divine Love. This is a truly amazing work, one of my favorites, and it's, it was written in the 14th century during a time of great turmoil. So Julian has a lot of wisdom to share with us. I've broken up this text into an eight-part series for this podcast. It's already up on the blog, so you can take a look at it if you want, or you can wait for the recording to come out. So week by week, I'll break down a section of her just beautifully transcendent writing in her longer text. Each section is about 20 pages, and um, you can follow along by reading on your own or just listen to um, the highlights that I'm going to share with you. And um, you can check out oldbookswithgrace.com to see the additions um, that I've posted and recommended. There's some free ones on there online. There's also some pretty cheap used editions. um, And then there's also the posts themselves. So take a look at that. And if you don't have the time and space in your life to actually read Julian's work, but just want a taste of the wisdom, um, please just join in here. Everyone is welcome to participate. 
regardless of your experience with old books. Today, before really getting into the meat of Julian, I want to give some background on this incredible contemplative writer. Who was Julian of Norwich? On the night of the 13th of May in 1373, Julian, the only name we have for her, was dying, as she thought, in her bed. She was 30 years old. Throughout the night, she experienced a series of what she called showings, sights and sounds given to her by God. She lived through the night and eventually wrote these visions down into a book to share with others, as she called them, her Evan Christian, her fellow Christians. We know virtually nothing about Julian's life before her showings. Some folks theorize she was a nun at a convent near Norwich. Some believe she was a widowed mother because of her interest in and familiarity with children in her writings. We can infer a few things pretty definitively. The first is that although at one point she calls herself unlearned, she had some kind of an education. She displays a familiarity with ongoing theological discussions about the nature of humanity and some Trinitarian theology. Her mother was at her bedside in the midst of her illness, so she certainly was not yet enclosed in her anchorite cell while she was ill. It appears that she had her showings and became an anchorite at some point after that in order to devote her life to prayer and her interpretation of her showings. So Julian may or may not have been her real name. After her showings, she withdrew from the world and became an anchorite. And you've heard me use that word several times. What is an anchorite? Might be what you're thinking right now. Anchorites were men and women who lived off um, in tiny cells off of churches. And they sometimes took the name of the church they lived in. Julian lived in St. Julian's um, in Conisford, Norwich in England. They were um, anchorites, that is, were not unusual in the late Middle Ages. There were several other anchorites in Norwich at the time of Julian. Um, And there would be anchorites in, in her particular cell all the way up to the dissolution of the monasteries in Henry VIII's Reformation um, quite some time later. When one became an anchorite and entered into the little cell on the side of the church, the priest would perform services for the dead um, as if you had died. And and that really was the idea that you had died to the world outside. Anchorites never left their cells. This didn't mean, though, that they lived an isolated life. Julian had a maid who attended her who wasn't an anchorite, who could have come and gone various places. We know this from wills that left money to both Julian and her maid Alice, as well as a later maid. We also know that people came to visit Julian, including another early um, English woman writer named Marjorie Kemp. Julian would have been known as a figure who gave counsel and guidance in her role as an anchorite. There were also some strict rules about being an anchorite. Naturally, you couldn't leave your anchor hold, your cell. You could, however, have a pet cat. So that's pretty great. You could sew clothes for the poor. You could accept donations from people. 
Um, and, and Julian's primary role as an anchorite was to pray for her community. Her cell had a window into the church itself from which she could see the priest celebrating mass and she could partake in the Eucharist and in the rhythms of the liturgical life. Um, she could pray for people. She could have conversations with other parishioners. Her life rhythms were structured by the liturgy, by the rhythms of the church, um, which is something we can see in her deep familiarity with scripture and her writings. And of course, she thought about and interpreted her great work, her showings. I say interpretation because something really interesting that sets Julian's writings apart from other medieval contemplative writers is that we have several versions of them, an earlier version and a revised and expanded later version. When we compare these two, we can see what she's thought necessary to cut or expand or reword, which makes her work an example of the process of interpretation. Julian's showings were complex and tough to understand, as we will soon see together. She spent 10 to 30 years, 10 to 30 years meditating and praying about them before she was able to set them into the final version of her showings, which has been published usually as a revelation of love or revelations of divine love. So reading Julian is not like reading C.S. Lewis, who I just quoted, or popular current um, preachers or theologians like Timothy Keller or Shauna Nequist or other devotional writers. These writers are, of course, thoughtful, but in most writing, you focus very hard on some sections and less hard on others. Reading Julian is more like reading poetry. Every word has been thought about and chosen with deliberation. You're not being too nitpicky if you become deeply interested in one word or one phrase, especially if you're noticing this word or phrase appearing several times. It's also important to remember that um, unless you're reading in the original Middle English, you're reading in translation, which is less precise than her original text. So if, if you get hung up on something, on an interesting word, um, it's often worth doing a little digging to see what word she was actually using. Um, and sometimes that can change our whole interpretation. Julian is um, actually the first woman writer in English whose work has survived. I mentioned Middle English. That's what she wrote in. Um, we now, obviously, she didn't call it Middle English. That's what we call it now. Uh, it predates Shakespeare's early modern English by over 200 years. And the most famous Middle English writer was Geoffrey Chaucer, who wrote the Canterbury Tales. Um, and some of you may be thinking, oh, I read the Canterbury Tales in high school or whatever. You may have some familiarity with that. So Chaucer and Julian are very close contemporaries. Julian's writing about 150 years before Martin Luther nails his theses to the door of his church and ignites the Reformation. So this is pre-Reformation writing, which is important to remember. Julian's also writing within a particular and ancient tradition, uh, what is sometimes called mystical writing, though I personally prefer the term contemplative writing. You may have heard of some other writers within this tradition, like Bernard of Clairvaux, 
Catherine of Siena, Teresa of Avila, John of the Cross. Um, there's been a lot of them throughout church history. Contemplative writing directly stems from one of the early church's forms of reading the Bible, mystical meaning, which actually doesn't mean anything super esoteric or weird, but simply the meanings of the Bible that are not strictly literal. For example, people like St. Augustine of Hippo in the fourth century read the story of Moses and the burning bush, and then they understood those figures as not only literally occurring in the ancient Middle East, but also as food for meditating on God's action in the world and his character, the incarnation. God takes ordinary things like a bush or a pregnant woman and fills them with his spirit and power and they take on new meaning. So there are several features of historical Christian contemplative writing. Unlike modern ideas of mysticism, it cannot be understood apart from the whole belief and practices of the church. Contemplative writing is a process. It's a pilgrimage of transformation. It's not just a focus on a brief moment that uh, transcends the senses. Though many Christian contemplative writers do write about that single moment of ecstasy or a series of visions like Julian, the larger focus and larger aim is on how, as the scholar Bernard McGinn puts it, quote, their encounter with God transforms their minds and their lives. God changes the mystics and invites, even compels them to encourage others by their teaching to open themselves to a similar process of transformation. Julian's encounter with God has encouraged her to share her teachings towards the goal of spiritual transformation for both herself and for her readers, for us. As Julian writes in chapter 72, she interprets her revelations to increase our knowledge in three ways. So she writes, the first is that we know our Lord God. The second is that we know ourselves, what we are through Him in nature and in grace. The third is that we humbly know ourselves with regards to our sin and our weakness. For Julian, these knowledges are inextricable from one another and all work together to increase our love for God and for one another. It may be helpful for you as you read or listen to ask yourself, what kind of knowledge and love is Julian trying to illuminate and foster? Is she revealing something about the character of the members of the church, the body of Christ? Is she highlighting a part of God's character that she finds important? When we open up Julian's book, we find ourselves in a world incredibly foreign to us. She believes different things than we do. Some, some same things, but a lot of different things. The rhythms and practices of her daily life are alien to us. Hint, we don't live in medieval England. We aren't Anchorites, although it may feel like it in the pandemic. Even her language presents us with unique challenges. Pay attention to these dissonances as you read. These places of pressure, of discomfort, are often the places where we can discover our own unspoken beliefs, even our biases and assumptions. So don't be discouraged if you find the words and the meaning difficult. That's actually really good. Um, take note of them. Let the book challenge you. Stay open to that challenge. In fact, Julian designs her work to unfold as you and she go through her showings. 
I'm so excited to begin this podcast journey with you. I always welcome your feedback. Uh, You can contact me at oldbookswithgrace at gmail.com or through the blog and let me know what you think. Until next time, I, uh, I hope you're excited for this journey and for Julian.